So Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to start today. Ephesians is in the New Testament about, I don't know, roughly halfway through. It's written by, anybody know who wrote Ephesians? Anybody? Paul, good, good guess, correct guess. It was Paul. You know who he wrote it to? <laughs> there you go. The Ephesians, the church. All the Ephesians are the people who went to church in Ephesus. People who went to church there, right? It's one of the churches that Paul planted and, and uh, Paul kind of traveled around. He was a campus pastor before we even had that title up. He planted churches and then turned them over to the locals and kept traveling on. So after he left, he wrote a letter. We believe it was in response to some kind of letter he got from them. We're not entirely sure, but... You know, he he wrote them a letter and, and kind of made some things specifically for them. But because it's included in the Bible, we can also see not only what it meant to them back then, but we can say, you know, what we're believers, we're Christians. What meaning can we take from this today? We're finishing up our series. This is the fourth part of our series that we call Hello, My Name is the Holy Spirit. And in this series, we've been introducing ourselves and reintroducing ourselves to the Holy Spirit on a personal basis. We don't want him to be this just mystical ghost that floats around there that we don't talk about in church. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to his disciples, when I go away, it's going to even be better for you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be not only on you, but he's going to be within you. And so we believe that if the Holy Spirit was here, well, and he is here this morning, that what he would do is he would be very personal on a first name basis with you. He would want to be approachable. He would want you to feel like you could connect with him on a very deep level and he with you. So that's what we've been trying to do with this series as if he showed up this morning with a name tag and his name tag said the Holy Spirit. Um, we've been asking the questions, who is he? Then we ask, what does he do? Last week, we talked about where is he? And today, we're going to talk about how he does it. If you missed any of those parts and you want to go back and listen to them, um, we have the audio all uploaded on our website. Julie, Julie again, more, <laughs> more work that Julie does all on a volunteer basis, but Julie has that all loaded up for us on our website, Echo Church Online, if you want to catch up with them. Um, also, I'll put the last week, if you were here, it depended upon a visual, you know, three circles. I have that all in an image that I'll upload to our Facebook page. If you want to grab that and pull that down, you can have that too. Today, we're going to talk about how he does it. But just as a quick refresher, when we asked who is he, here's what we, here's what we land on. Who is he? He is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Jesus used a Greek word to describe him. He said, I'm going to send to you the paraclete, which to me sounds like parasite. And I know that's not what he meant. <laughs> I don't speak Greek, but paraclete means to come alongside. In other words, what Jesus is saying is I'm going to send the one of the Godhead, not God the Father because he was in heaven or Jesus the Son. I'm going to send to you the paraclete, the one who will come alongside you. So when you think about the Holy Spirit, he's not the one who wants to talk down to you or run after you and chase you. He wants the one. He is the one who comes alongside of us. That's who he is. What does he do? We just talked about a couple of things. He gives us access. I like access. And he gives us access to God, to his knowledge, to his wisdom, to his power, to the things that God knows that I don't know. He makes me aware of sin, which I know on the front end doesn't really sound like a great selling point, like maybe we don't want to be so much aware of our sin, but it really is an act of mercy on God's behalf to let us know when we've gone in the wrong direction and to make us aware of that. Another thing that he does is the Bible uses this kind of big $10 word. This, he sanctifies us. Sanctify means to make me less like I used to be before I knew Jesus and make me more like who Jesus really is. And that's a relief because God doesn't say, I expect you to be responsible for making yourself holy. In fact, I can't. There's nothing that I can do. But the Holy Spirit can do that by washing me through and through and through. So that's what, what he does. Last one we asked, where is he? And, and kind of what we landed on was the Holy Spirit's not just way out there somewhere. The Holy Spirit lives inside of every single person who's decided to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So he's not out there anymore. He's in here. 
He's inside of each and every one of us to help us in everything that we do. We have a body, we have a soul, we have a spirit, and the Holy Spirit upon salvation fuses together with our spirit. And from that point, the adventure is finding ways to not keep who he is and how he thinks and how he feels all bottled up in my spirit, but to let the Holy Spirit guide my thoughts and guide my emotions. And because if he guides my thoughts and my emotions and my attitudes, my actions are going to line up. And if we can just learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and not listen to what we want all the time, if I can get to that place in my life where I can just follow everything the Holy Spirit says, then I'll never stray far away from Jesus because he'll never direct me otherwise. So that's kind of where we went. So here's the big question. How does he do it? He does amazing things. We read, we read through the New Testament and a bunch of different scriptures about all the different things the Holy Spirit does. He, he makes us clean. He makes us aware of sin. He helps us overcome bondages. He can heal. He can give power. There's crazy stories in the New Testament about some of the things the Holy Spirit. So how does he do it? If there's a secret sauce here somewhere, what is his secret sauce? Well, how, how in the world does he do what he does? And I would be absolutely arrogant to think that I could break that all down for you. I'm just a finite human being. The only place I can go to find any clue for this is the Bible. And the reason I can trust the Bible is because this is what God said about himself is true. So if God said it of himself, then we know that we can count on it, that it's absolutely true. So, so here's, here's kind of just an answer to this. I find it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16, and then again in verse 20. Here's, here's how Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And inside of this prayer is a clue as to how he does what he does. Paul said this, I pray that from... His, talking about God, I pray that from God's, I love these words, glorious, unlimited resources, he will, and then here's the key word, he will empower you. Now, if you go down to Barnes and Nobles, or you you go through your little Kindle store on Amazon, and you just looked up books on empowerment, that's a word that lots of people use. There's lots of great business books on how to empower your staff, empower your team. Empowerment is a term that we th- it means to not just hold all the power for yourself as the boss, but to be willing to share that type of power so that everybody in your organization feels like they have the, the, the uh, ability and the permission to make decisions in real time that actually can get done. So here's what he says. I pray that from God's glorious and limited resources, he will empower you with inner strength. How? Through his spirit and then in verse 20 he says and i love this verse now all glory to god who is able through his mighty power already at work inside of us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think so if we put that all together and boil it down into a big idea the big idea i want you to go home with today is that the holy spirit's primary way not the only way i get in trouble when i try and i don't want to limit him but it looks like the primary way that the holy spirit does everything he does is via his unlimited resource of power that's up in heaven that we have to ask for every time we need it. No. What's the Bible teach us? How does he do it? He does it according to his unlimited resource of power that is already at work inside of every fully committed follower of Jesus. Do you realize that the moment you accept, and not everybody, I realize not everybody in the room has said yes to Jesus. That's okay. It's your... It's your right to say yes or say no to Jesus. I just want to make sure you have the right to make that choice. You get to make whatever choice you want. I'm just thankful that at least at this point in our country, we can publicly still give you that option. I just want to give you that choice. You have to decide what you're going to do. Jesus said to his disciples, what does this person say about me? What does that person say about me? But then he just brought it right home. He said, what do you say about me? That's a question every human being has to deal with. What are you going to do with Jesus? What do you think about him? Who do you think he is? But everybody who says yes to Jesus and 
repents of their sin and, and surrenders control of their life to Jesus. They change driver's seats. They say, I'm not going to be in charge anymore. God, you, you, you're the Lord. You're my Savior. And I'm going to do as you say. Every single person who says that has the Holy Spirit now fused together with their spirit living inside of them, according to 1 Corinthians 6. So the way that the Holy Spirit does what he does is through empowering people. Power. But it's not just locked up in heaven somewhere that you have to beg for it every time you have it. It is fused together with your spirit. The, the opportunity for you and me is to figure out how then do I access the power of God that's living inside of the Holy Spirit in me, get it up out of me and out into the world where I need it. That's what we want to talk about a little bit this morning. How does he do it? How does the Holy Spirit do that? By power that's at work inside of me. The Bible records, and there's a typo here that I made, not Linda, I made this one. It's not a 53-day time period. It's a 50, okay? The Bible records a 50-day time period in Peter's life between Good Friday and Pentecost that remarkably demonstrates the before and after effects of the Holy Spirit's resonance inside of him. A lot of, uh, lot of prose there. Let me boil that right down. If I had to look at somebody's life before and after their salvation experience and before and after their experience in terms of a, a second experience after salvation that they had with the Holy Spirit to kind of see how it moved them along in life Peter's the guy to look at in a very compressed period of time. Now, I'm always, you know, I have satellite radio in my car, and it seems like every morning when I'm on the way to work with, with my coffee and my granola bar they, is when they start, on the commercial breaks, they start talking about, you know, having trouble losing that stubborn five pounds around your midsection. <laughs> you know, like, how did you know, you know? You know, use this pill or start this diet, and we promise in 30 days, you know, no risk. You know, there's all kinds of risk when you start doing There's all kinds of risk with that. But there is this popular sales tactic that promises instant results to things. That's the way they try and sell stuff. If you take this pill for 30 days, you'll change from this person standing in front of the mirror looking really grumpy to the person with the chiseled abs and running down the beach with their dog and with a surfboard under their arm. You know, they promise these, you know, uh, or like the teeth whitening commercials. You know, they show the person with the sad face, you know, and then the real happy face with a bright smile. And it's only 30 days and there's no risk. Here's the deal. Well, long before that happened, there's a 50-day time period in Peter's life where he went from point A to point whatever point he was at, at the end. And I want us to look at that briefly. I want us to t- kind of look at three different places. We're going we're to kind of focus in on three different scenes in his life. There is a fireplace, there is a door, and there is a window. So let's look at scene one. Let's look at Peter at the fireplace. And here's what I'm learning from this. I'll give you the point, and then I'll support that for you. Here's one thing that I learned. When Peter was at the fireplace, I took this away from it. Without the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, I will likely make commitments to God I can't keep. Without the Holy Spirit inside of me, I will likely make commitments to God that I cannot keep. I wonder if you've ever done that. I know I have. I've made well-intentioned, good commitments to God that at the time I made it, I really meant it. But I blew it later on. Sometimes it took a while but other times I've said, God, this is what I want to do for you. This is what I want to change about me. This is, you know, and then a week or a month later, or sometimes by the end of the day, or even by the end of the prayer, I'd blown it. Without the power of the Holy Spirit inside me, it's likely that I'll make promises to God that I can't keep. Luke chapter 22 reads this way. This is at the Last Supper. This is Jesus speaking. Simon, Simon, Peter's name, Peter, Peter. Satan has asked to sift each of you, the apostles, like wheat. But I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, Peter, that your faith should not fail. So when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and to even die with you. That was his commitment. 
Did Peter go to prison with Jesus? Scholars in the audience. Did Peter go to prison with Jesus? No. Did he hang on the cross next to Jesus? No. Those of you that have done some reading, though, did he eventually die for Jesus? Was he eventually crucified? Hmm. So he eventually made good on this commitment, just not right then and there, right? There's some relief in that for all of us, isn't it? So he says, I'm ready to go with you to death. I'm ready to go with you to cross. Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. I wonder how many conversations of mine with God that he has to say, Phil, let me tell you something. I've heard what you said, but let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny three times that you even know me. Then a little bit later on in the story, we'll, we'll pick that up in a second. So here was the situation. It was the Last Supper, Good Friday. Here's Peter. Now, at this point, understand, Peter's not a Christian yet. You can't be a Christian without accepting that Jesus rose from the dead. Had Jesus been crucified and buried in, at this point? No. Peter was a Jew whose relationship with God was under the, the law, which to us today is the old law, but then at that time it was the only law that they had. His relationship with God was following the rules and depending upon a priest and sacrifices and offerings for things to be okay between he and God. So at this point, he's not a Christian. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of him. But he loved Jesus. I mean, look at this guy. Peter, if you don't know anything about Peter, know this. He was a strong man. He was the guy that Jesus said, you're rock. I will call you rock and I will build church on this rock. He was a really strong man. He was a, he, he was a fisherman by trade. He, he was usually the first one out of all the, the apostles to volunteer for things. He was usually the only one that when Jesus asked a question, he wasn't afraid to speak up. Now, a lot of times he spoke when he really shouldn't have spoken up. He was the guy who the Bible says, one of my favorite verses on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says, Peter, not knowing what to say, said. Maybe you're that person. You know, I don't know. But Peter was the first one out of the boat. He was the last one standing. When they, let's not vilify this guy too bad this morning, okay? There's a lot of good redeeming qualities in this guy. He was a self-starter. He was an initiator. And he made a commitment to Jesus in this moment where Jesus basically says, I'm going away. You can't come with me. Satan's asked to destroy you. But someday you guys are going to really move forward in your walk with me. You're going to do things you could never imagine. And Peter said, I don't need to wait. I'm ready right now, Jesus. I'll follow you to prison. I'll follow you to death. Essentially what Peter's saying, Jesus, I love you so much that I'll go anywhere you ask me to go. I'll give up anything you want me to give up. I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. How many times have we said the same thing? Really? We've even sung songs, I'll go to the end of the earth for you, but we won't go to the end of our street. Right? And I wonder what God thinks when we sing those things. You know? Not that he's doubting our sincerity, because sometimes you can be totally sincere and totally unable to make good on that commitment. You can say, I'll do anything for you. And what if someone really took you up on that? Okay, I meant anything except for this big category of thing. What's Peter saying? I'll go. And Jesus said, you're not ready. It's not time. Peter, you won't. You won't make it till the end of the day. But he didn't know. So Peter leaves that conversation with one thing in mind. I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to show Jesus. He thinks I'm going to be tested. I'm going to pass the test. So a little bit later, we read the story here. We go back to Luke chapter 22, verse 54. It says, Peter followed Jesus at a distance. He was all by himself at that point because what had happened to the rest of them? In between where we left off and this part picks up, something happened. Judas came back with all the bad guys, right? She says, this is the guy. Turns Jesus over to the bad guys. Peter, in a moment of brilliance, decides I'm going to personally take on all these guys. I will show Jesus how much I love him by cutting off that guy's ear. Like, and, and Jesus puts the ear back on and says, Peter, what are you thinking? There's 30 of them and there's one of you. And, and even if you succeeded, I don't really want you to succeed in this. Even if you could fight them all off, you don't get it. 
It's not time. So what do all the other disciples do? They take off running because they're scared, but not Peter. Peter still follows Jesus behind the soldiers at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this has to be one of them because he's a Galilean too. Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, Jesus turned and looked right at Peter. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny three times you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. So this is kind of his, his first failure, and his first failure was, was right there at the fireplace. You know, let's, let's do a quick autopsy here. How many of us in moments of intimacy and conviction and emotion have made similar pledges to Jesus? We commit to changing our language. We commit to praying more. We commit to reading our Bible more. We commit to not watching cable TV. We commit to being better moral people. We commit to starting habits or stopping habits. We commit to reaching people that are, that are lost or that don't believe as we do. We commit to changing our priorities. We commit to giving up our habitual sins or those addictions that we carry with us. We're well-intentioned and serious, just like Peter was. But ultimately, there comes a point down the road that we fall off the wagon and we fail. It's interesting. But look what Peter does in moving up to this point. He goes farther than anybody else. He follows Jesus because he loves him and he wants to prove his worth to Jesus. He actually, as he actually, he's a Galilean, right? And he sets foot in the high priest's property to follow Jesus, which I didn't know until I studied this. That was considered trespassing to the Galileans. He knew very well that by following Jesus that close, he was already breaking the law. And if you read through the three different times, we just read one, if you read through the three different times that Peter denied Jesus, here's what was happening. It was cold in that particular time of the year, and so he gathers around a fire, but some things start tipping off. Think of the people who are in this circle. These are his peers, but these are people who did not like Jesus. If there was ever a group of lost people that needed someone to reach them, here was the opportunity, right? And here's Peter around the fire, and they start to notice he's not dressed the way that everybody else is dressed. And one of them says, you're not dressed like one of us. Are you with Jesus? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not with Jesus. Then they hear him talk and his accent and his language is different. You dress different and you talk different. Were you with him? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I swear I wasn't with Jesus. He stays there a little longer. They say, wait a minute. We saw you look familiar to me. You were with Jesus doing ministry at the temple. We think we saw you at this place. We think you saw the... You're definitely, you're with him. Are you with him? And who knows what it really was that caused Peter to break down here? It could have been his sense of fear about the consequences of really telling the truth. It could have been that he was unusually for Peter at a loss for words. Because haven't you been there? You even put on the spot and you know there's a right answer and you ain't got it. And it's not coming. Yeah, (laughs) And we revert back to kind of that self-preservation instinct. I'm just saying whatever I need to do to get out of this moment and figure it out later. I don't know why it was. Maybe it was fear. Who knows? He denied Jesus three times. And then he locks eyes with Jesus. And he recognized that he failed him. And he made it no further than the end. I mean, they had dinner. He made it no further than a few hours into the morning. And he had already blown his commitment to Jesus. And there's probably a lot of reasons why. But one of the things that I can say from the story, because I know the end of it, is that without the power of the Holy Spirit to make good on some of those commitments, I'm always going to blow it. I can say, Jesus, please forgive me. Help me never sin again and sin again. And every time that I sin, it is a failure of me listening to the Holy Spirit inside of me. Every time. 
I'm going to think something he's not guiding me to think. I'm going to do something he's not directing me to do. I'm going to react in a way he's not guiding me to react. And without a relationship with the Holy Spirit, I'm always going to fail. And any commitment I make to Jesus is not going to be able to, if it's me taking it on my own effort, it's, it's probably doomed from the get-go. It's not a willpower thing. It's a spirit power thing. So one of the things I learned from the story is a fireplace. But you know what the good news is, is that the story doesn't end here. The good news is that we can see Peter just a couple days later. So there's 50 days between Good Friday and Pentecost in the Jewish calendar. We're going to end the story at Pentecost. We're starting it at Good Friday. So let me take you three days later, Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, the evening of the first day of the week. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried. He's risen again. Risen again. That's Georgia language. I'm sorry. He's risen again. He's alive now. And here's what happens a little bit later. Let's let's go look at Peter behind a locked door. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. I love, I love this story. Here's what it says. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. That Sunday evening, the disciples were, and this is important, meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And I understand it. They just crucified their leader. And they were part of this guy. And if they, they were looking for anybody else to crucify, public sentiment was on their side. So they were hiding out behind a locked door. Because they were scared. And here's a beautiful book. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Have you ever wondered how he got there? It did not involve opening the locked door. <laughs> it's right there. They're behind a locked door. And suddenly, other versions say he appeared. Just He hadn't done this before. This is part of him showing his new body. And this has nothing to do with the message. But do you know what the Bible talks about the new body we get? It says it will be like his body. Now, I don't know how that works in the space-time continuum. But my mind likes to imagine, how cool is it when I get to him? I'm going to have a body that can just appear and just may, I don't know. I mean, the jokes I can play on people are going to be great. <laughs> and scare them and disappear before they hit me. I don't know. But um, that's totally just opinion. That's not, but anyway. So he just appeared, he's standing there among them and he says, peace be with you. Interesting, he says peace because the last thing they're probably feeling when he shows up just vaporizing in the middle of the room, I, I wouldn't feel peace. I'd feel, I'd feel terror. But he says, peace be with you. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And the verse that I didn't include on here, it says, and he breathed, it says they were filled with joy. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You know what that is? Well, you have, might have to go back and listen to the last. You know what it means when he says he breathed the Holy Spirit on them? That's their conversion experience. That's when they accepted Jesus, just not as their teacher, but as their Lord and Savior. So here you have a room full of brand new Christians, the first converts, really. That, I mean, there might, I don't know how that works with the people on the way to and from and everything, but they were among the first converts. Here they are saved on their way to heaven, but behind a locked door for fear. And I wonder if you've ever been there. I know I have. I'm saved. I'm in love with Jesus. I know I'm on my way to heaven. But something about that power that I'm supposed to be living out is locked up somewhere inside. I mean, it's not quite out of me yet. I still live with some fear. I still live with some intimidation. There are still things in my heart I want to be and I want to do for God that I can't seem to get out of my imagination and into the real world where I live. And that's right where Peter was. And he was in a far better place than he was than he was when he was here, right? Because here 
He had blown it. He had no hope. He didn't know if Jesus was ever going to talk to him again. Now he's behind the door with all his comrades, locked behind the doors of fear, trying to figure out their next move. Jesus hadn't let him a whole lot of instructions. I know I've been there. Usually when Jesus doesn't leave me instructions, it's time for me to start brainstorming. And that's when disaster happens. But there they are behind the locked door. Jesus finds them behind the locked door, which is awesome. Because you might be locked up with fear and intimidation. I think you need to break through that before Jesus can work with you. Uh Uh-uh, he'll go right behind that door and find you right where you're at. Because outside of that, you might not be able to get out that locked door. So there he is. So what's the lesson that you see here? Well, here's the lesson I see here. Without the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, I'll likely be controlled by fear more often than by my faith in God. Because most of the things that I need God for involve me overcoming an element of fear. The things I'm not intimidated by, I generally don't lean on God too much to do them. Just speaking of myself. The things you feel capable of, you might not be begging God to help you do. Now, it's not a bad thing for us to start depending on God for everything. But most of us don't start there. But I will tell you this, most of the things that God wants you to do and to be that you think are beyond your ability to do on your own, you're going to have to conquer some fear. You're going to have to conquer some doubt. You're going to have to conquer some intimidation. And where was he trying to go with these disciples? These were the guys who 37 days or whatever it was, 47 days from that point would be responsible for evangelizing the world and they're still hiding out behind a locked door. Now that's pressure. If I give you that assignment, say these 11 jokers behind this locked door that are so scared of everything and don't want to come out, you've got less than two months to get them inspired and excited about going out and facing all these people they're scared of, telling them a message that might get them killed and spreading it all over the world for history, you'd probably pass on that assignment to somebody else. That was Jesus' assignment. That's what he was trying to do. His job on earth was almost done. How did he get them out from behind that locked door to the end of the story, even beyond Pentecost, where all of those, or 10 of those 11 guys eventually embrace martyrdom for the cause of Jesus, and the other guy lives out in isolation on an island by himself because of being imprisoned for Jesus, and actually embrace that. How did he move them from there? How did he get them from that point where they were just saved but scared to a point where they embraced all that they were in Jesus? And, how, and can you and I get to the same place? Let's go to the last scene, the window. We've got a little window hanging up there. I'm not going to climb out of it this morning. We have a little window hanging up there. Peter in the window. So there's something that happens between what I'm about to read to you and this point. So they're in the locked door. They're, they're in the locked door. They're behind the locked door. But over the next 47 days, between, or over the next, actually, the next, what, 30? I, I'm going to lose the math in my mind. But there's a week between when Jesus ascended and so like over the next 37 days. A little over, a little over a month. Five weeks. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1 that they ate with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. He showed them many convincing proofs. You know, Jesus, we're sorry. We, we just want to make sure this isn't a dream. Can you show us the nail marks? Okay, got it. He showed them many convincing proofs that it really was him. And now by this point, he's noting, noticing that the attitude has begun to change from fear to a little bit of swagger. They were ready to go. In fact, Acts chapter 1, the conversation changes a little bit because Jesus recognized, it says one time while he was eating very close to when he was going to go into heaven, in fact, maybe even the day of, he said to them, you're going to do some awesome things. You guys are going to make sure that my work is carried on and you're going to do even greater things than I could do. He says, but I need you to do something. Don't go do it yet. I need you to wait. When has he ever said that to these guys? These are the guys who always needed Jesus to answer 40 questions, have a press conference, and then send them out almost kicking and screaming. And then they'd always come back saying, we couldn't do it. We failed. We got confused. What do we do now? And he's seeing something different in their eyes than before the time he saw them behind the door. He's saying these guys are ready to go now. 
They're ready to do something. They're ready to charge hell with a water pistol and think they're going to make it. And he says, I need you to wait because I'm going to send you a gift from heaven to help you get this done. And you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And one of the disciples, we don't know which one, says, hey, is this the part you were talking about where you're going to come back from heaven and knock out the government? We're all going to get cabinet positions. Jesus says, no, no. I just need you to wait here in Jerusalem. You'll be baptized with power. And then you'll be empowered to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. And you can imagine the next question, well, Jesus, how long do we need to wait? Just wait. Well, wait where? Jerusalem. Well, thank you, Jesus, for that. Jerusalem's a big city. Where? Just wait here. Well, how will we know how long to wait? Oh, you'll know. Well, how do we know when we got this gift? Oh, I'll make it very obvious. Just wait. And you know what they did? Mystery, they waited. The little light bulb clicked. Because usually when Jesus told them to do A, they did the opposite of A. Stay awake and pray. And they went to sleep, right? Go out and cast out demons. Jesus, we can't do it. <laughs> now he says, wait. And they say, all right, we'll wait. We can't figure this guy out. He's been trying to tell us, go, 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 go. And now he says, wait. <laughs> That's parenting for me. It's like a tell me, stop, 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 stop. And he finally stops. And then, no, go. You know, it just doesn't work. So they wait. 120, about 120. Let's look at the, about 120 of them wait. Bible says, there's certain things about this we could never recreate. I don't know when we'll get all the belief. All the Christians in the world were in one place at one time in this story. It will never happen again. About 120 of them wait. Do you know where they waited? It says they waited at the house where they were staying. There's a little list. It's interesting if you read a little list in Acts chapter 1 of how many people were still waiting for this gift. There's a kind of a who's who list. Some of the people you'd expect, the, the apostles. You know who else was there? Fascinating. Jesus' mother was there. Think about this for Mary. She is one of the first. She's one of the. Well, I got goosebumps. Think about it. She's one of the 120. This was her baby. And now he's her Lord. And she watches him ascend up into heaven. And she waits. She waits with these 120. And she receives the same gift. Right? There's a really neat list of people there. It says Jesus's brothers and sisters were there. And if you read through the story, they didn't even believe he was who he said he was for a while. They had a conversion experience, and now they're waiting. It's amazing. So here's what happens. So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they're waiting one particular day, the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the most populated day in, all of, in, in Jerusalem. Everybody, it was one of those gathering holidays. Everybody from out of town that had Jewish roots came to town, and the streets were packed, and they were loud, and it was early in the morning. In fact, it wasn't out of place for people to have a little wine too early and get a little ruckus, which is why when some of the people hear what's going on up in the upper room with these guys, say, ah, it's just 10 in the morning. They're already into the wine already. They're drunk. These same people were the same people who just, what, 50 days ago lined the streets and called for Jesus to be crucified. These same people that are packing the streets are the ones that Peter was scared to death of letting them know he was in any way associated with Jesus. So here's these 120 upstairs in the second floor room of this house. And here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2. They heard a sound like, it didn't say it was, but they heard a sound like a rushing mighty wind. It says they saw what looked like, didn't say they were, but it says they looked like little tongues of fire. Which is interesting, again, when God does stuff, a lot of times our English language just, it just fails us. The best we can do is talk about what it's like, not what it is. 
And I love that about God. I don't need him to be as exact as I want him to be. I like him to be bigger than my language can describe. That fits the billing. And they start speaking in other languages as God gave them utterance, which is interesting. So here's what happened. And we talked about this last week. I can just fast forward through this right now. Um, So what was happening was they were seeking. To seek means to put your mind on it, to just go at When you're seeking your car keys, you are focused on that. And it tends to reason that your, your body goes along for the ride. So, we're, so they have been seeking and waiting and seeking and waiting. And they were praying and they were in unity. And there they were. And that opened up a perfect pipeline for God to deposit something in them that they didn't get when they were saved. And here's how they knew they got it. Well, first of all, they hear things they never heard. And so I would already be a little tripped out seeing the little tongues of fire coming down from him. And then if I were able to immediately and spontaneously speak fluently a language that I didn't study, that I didn't even really know entirely what it meant, but I could pull that language up out of my spirit into my thoughts and release it through my mouth, I'd think maybe this thing that Jesus talked about has just happened. That's pretty spectacular evidence. I mean, I appreciate Rosetta Stone and everything else and learning languages. This is way beyond that. And I could spend a whole lot of time talking about the whole tongue thing, and maybe one week we will. I don't want to get over the top on that. It was proof to them. It was the proof that they didn't have to sit in that room anymore, that they got whatever it was, and they could get on with getting on. So here's what happens. So now what happens is Peter stands up in the window. The same Peter that 50 days ago couldn't even hang out with a couple dozen people around the fire. He says, you know what, the streets are filled. He gets up, he stands up in the window, and here's what he says. Acts chapter 2, verses 14, 38, and 41. Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd. You know how loud you have to talk over top of thousands of people? He shouted to the crowd, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. About how many? (laughs) 3,000 people. Can I suggest to you a pretty radical transformation in Peter's life over 50 days? Here's a guy who couldn't put two words together in front of a couple dozen people about Jesus who then accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior but still had a little bit of fear and intimidation. I was kind of locked up behind a door trying to figure out what was next. Now all of a sudden something happens along the way that gives him the courage and the confidence to open up the window to stand up to yell out over the same people who crucified Jesus a few weeks ago and tell them straight up, that guy you crucified, read the whole sermon, that guy you crucified is the guy the Old Testament talked about. That was our Messiah that you killed. But you know what? We're not angry at you today. That's the guy who has now rose from the dead. And every one of us up here, we're all witnesses to that. And if you'll just accept him and believe in him, he didn't have props. He didn't have a sound system. He didn't have a building. He just had a personal relationship with Jesus and empowerment from the Holy Spirit. And he speaks. And at the end of his message, you know what they said? I, I, I don't care. You know what they said? This says the people were cut to their heart and said, preacher, stop. Tell it. What do I need to do? I want it. 3,000 people got saved. They had no church planting plan for this. They got up that day going to a prayer meeting with 120 people. At the end of that day, they had 3,120 people to pastor. Yikes. They had no building big enough. They had no plan. They had no cookies to deliver. to the. They had no connect card. I mean that tongue in cheek, but I mean something by saying that. 
need to be careful. No, here's the deal. I love church science. I love church studies. I love all that. But man, sometimes we overthink this stuff. Heaven help us if we get to the point that we think we can solve church problems in the world's dilemmas up here. It's a here thing. It's a spirit of God thing. And I am a pastor. I make a living by being a pastor. I'm not downing what church is at all. But let's not bypass what's always worked. And that was people who had a real relationship with Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit to transform the world they lived in. Now, it didn't mean they had to figure some systems out. If you keep reading Acts, they had all kinds of administrative problems with this. They had to, you know, after a while, it wasn't just like, hey, let's go preach in the street corner every day. It's like, okay, people are coming. How do we take care of all these needs now? We, we need a widow ministry team. We need a, we need a benevolence team. We need a team to pray for people's healing. We need a team of leaders who can help with you. They, it, it went there. But guys, you know where the church started? It started right there. That's how the church started. So what was it? That changed in Peter's life. Even after he got saved, here's the thing. Even after he got saved, not my opinion, but Jesus' opinion was, Peter, I'm glad you're saved, but you're not quite ready to do what I've called you to do yet. You're on your way to heaven. There's something else I have for you if you want. It's a gift. You can wait for it. You can go do your own thing. Here's a question I get asked a lot. So I bring this thing to a close. In fact, I was asked it just this week. Someone said, you know, I have a friend of mine who speaks in tongues. They've received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they compare their life to Peter's life in Acts chapter 2. And they say, you know, I've never seen that. I've spoken in tongues, but I don't see the power. And I said, well, what do you, do you think that what Peter experienced is supposed to be the norm for all of us? Do you think that God's intention for every single one of us is to stand up at McDonald's and preach and people get saved? Seriously. It's not what the Bible teaches. Bible teaches we're all supposed to go in the world. That's the big plan. We're all supposed to go in the world, make disciples, preach the gospel. But it also says he gifted some people to be evangelists and he gifted some people to be apostles and he gifted some people to be teachers and he gifted some people to be prophets and he's gifted people to do a bunch of different things. So is the baptism of the Holy Spirit about making you a mini evangelist that can go into hostile territory and preach and thousands of people get saved? Very possibly. But it could also mean that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to give you the power to carry that unique assignment that God gave to you. God call you to do? What did he make you to do? What are the things that you get up in the morning and hit the ground and say, if I could do this for God, I'd be happy? What are some of those things? And why couldn't this power of the Holy Spirit be empowerment to help you do that? Because some people say, I don't want to stand up in the window and preach to people. I don't want this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. Other people say, what would I do with the tongues part? I'll hit on that real briefly right now. There's not a whole lot of benefits to tongues. There are some. And if you're thinking, Pastor, if you're trying to sell me on the ability to speak a language nobody understands fluently, that just doesn't work for me. Well, that would make a lot of sense. I mean, there really isn't much benefit to speaking a language that maybe nobody else understands. But let me tell you some of the benefits that tongues has. Number one, it's proof that you got what you think you were looking for. You don't have to wonder anymore. Number two... Um, and this is just from personal experience, I can tell you one, one of the things I was not expecting when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I, I saw the evidence of speaking of, uh, in other tongues, I was not expecting that that stream could just go on indefinitely. Because here was my deal, like I prayed for two or three minutes, and I prayed every word I needed to know, I prayed everything I needed to know, and people said, well, you need to pray for longer, and I wanted to pray longer, I just ran out of words. Here's what I discovered, when I, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I was given a language that the Holy Spirit prays through me that is just inexhaustible. And it's given me this incredible stamina in my prayer life that I used to not have. The other thing that's a great relief to me is sometimes I'm praying over a situation that I prayed everything I need to know that 
I've prayed everything that I know in my mind, but I'm like, I feel like somehow I'm just not quite praying everything that should be prayed, but I don't know where to go. I just say, all right, Holy Spirit, use my mouth and, and pray through me because you know what needs to be prayed. So that's an advantage. The other thing is that, the, that Satan is different than God in a lot of ways, but sometimes we give him too much credit. credit. Satan's not omnipotent and he's not omniscient. That means he's not all powerful. He's po- Satan's more powerful than me, not more powerful than the spirit in me, but he is more powerful than me. That's why when a lot of people, I'm going to go mess with the devil. You better not, but let Jesus do it through you. He's more powerful than you are, but not through the Jesus that lives in you. So get out of the way and let Jesus do what he needs to do. He can't understand everything. And the Bible says that when I speak in tongues, that's usually known, known between me and God. And if I need help interpreting that, he gives the interpretation to someone else. What are you saying by that? Satan doesn't know what I'm saying when I pray in tongues. But the Bible does say that Satan, through his elaborate network of demonic powers, can hear prayers and interfere with them. So I don't want to bypass all that and really throw them off. Switch over to a language they don't know. So there's another practical benefit to all those things. But someone brought something to my attention this week that I never thought about, and I haven't even formulated this all in my mind, but it was very interesting. I think it's right on. If you read Revelation chapter 7, it says, In heaven there will be more than one language. I don't know how that all works in my brain. It's heaven. It's infinite. I'm finite. But if you go way back... How did we get different languages to begin with? We started with one, right? Then you had this incident, the Tower of Babel, where man thought we were going to build a, we're going to build a stairway to heaven long before Led Zeppelin came along. We're going to build a stairway to heaven, and we're going to have dominion over God. And God said, Mm-mm, the only way that I can undo this is by confusing their language. They won't be able to talk. So at that point, we had all these different languages, confused everything. Isn't it beautiful that in heaven there's going to be tongues from every tribe and nation there, and when God sends the proof of the Holy Spirit, we now have a little bit of a taste of heaven right here on earth. He's given us a language back again that we can use in praise and in prayers. It's my, our, our pastor, Pastor George, is, is getting his doctorate, and he was talking to me about this. One of the foundational keys of his doctrine, of his doctorate is why spirit-filled churches need to really hold on to what that really means because it's part of reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel. And, and, and he's much smarter than I am. I mean, I, you know, I, I have trouble... I have trouble putting Ikea furniture together, and he thinks about these things deeply. But there's just a few benefits of that, and sometimes we get so hung up on the tongues and trying to think through all that. You know, I, for me, it's all about the power that's available to me if I want it. This is the third point here. Here's what I learned. This is the last thing. With, with the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of me, I have access to unlimited resources of power to live a fully optimized life with maximum kingdom impact. With the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of me, I have access to unlimited resources of power to live a fully optimized life with maximum kingdom impact. The reason I want you to have a personal relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, the reason I want you to want to seek God for anything above and beyond what you already have to empower you, is because I want for you to be able to look in the mirror and say, I'm doing everything I can with my life to get everything that God's put in my heart and my imagination out of me and into the world that I live in. I want to have maximum kingdom impact. I notice I didn't say the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is about helping all your dreams come true because not all my dreams are God birth dreams, to be honest with you. Some of my dreams for me are just things I came up with. I want to see all 30 baseball stadiums before I die. I don't know that God put that in my heart. It's not a bad dream. But sometimes my dreams get in the way of what God has for me. And then the closer that I get to God, I recognize that, you know, his dreams, not only are they good, but I actually kind of prefer them to what mine are. Why do I want you to, to be open to that? Because if you've got a dream in your heart, there's a certain misery that we all live with when our dreams are stuck there. There's a certain you that God wants you to be and that you have in your heart to be. And if you're hitting some roadblocks, can I suggest to you that maybe the way to get through that is to power up through the Holy Spirit. 
Pastor, do you believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for today? I absolutely do. Do you want to have a long conversation about that this morning? I can't have a long conversation about that this morning. We can have a conversation about that this morning. But the invitation to you is the same to the disciples. You can go. And you can do you can do life as you see best and you can still end up in heaven. But if you really want to go and make the maximum kingdom kingdom impact and you can seek and you can wait on this particular gift that happened after they were saved. That at no point does the Bible ever tell us that God said, OK, we don't need it anymore. But it's available to you today. Pastor, do you believe that if I seek God for it, that I, too, will speak in tongues? I do. Well, when will that happen? When it happens. Well, does someone have to pray for me? No. Can it happen in church? Sure. Can it happen at home? Sure. Can it happen while I drive the car? Sure, but be careful. <laughs> what, do I need to, what do I need to do to get it? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a one through five step plan for this, which matches me up because I love bullets and numbers and everything else. Here's what we know. It happens after salvation. So you have to have a relationship with Jesus. Number two, you have to want it because the Holy Spirit's not going to just invade your world and force something on you that you don't want. All that we know they did was they seeked God and they waited for it and they prayed for it. And then it happened. And they didn't just sit in the room the rest of their lives talking in tongues. They got out and they did ministry. Well, Pastor, what, that thing you said about Peter, that thing you said about him, that maybe my life won't look like his. Well, maybe some of you in the room say, I do want more power to reach somebody for Jesus that I've been trying to reach that I can't get through to. But then there were other people in the room if we read the rest of their story, we don't know if they led a person to Jesus or not. I don't know what Mary, the mother of Jesus, did. Maybe she did go out and lead thousands of people to Jesus. Or maybe, maybe like the Bible says, she just gave her life to being hospitable to people. And that was her way. And he gave her the power to do it. What about James? James was in the upper room. I don't know if he led a soul to Jesus, but by Acts chapter 15, he was an awesome administrator at the church at Jerusalem. He had to oversee a very tense council of people with strong opinions about what the church should be doing. And they didn't all agree. He had to referee a fight between Peter and Paul. I don't know if James led a single person to Jesus. I'd like to believe that he did. But I know that he was in that room. He received that power. And it gave him the power to do what God gifted him uniquely to do in, a, in the time that he was called to do it. There was 119 other people in the room besides Peter, and I don't know the rest of all their stories. But I can tell by the fact that we've heard about Jesus and we're standing here today that they were pretty successful in what God called them to do, weren't they? I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. I just want to pray over you. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Most important thing, the reason that our team got here at 8 o'clock today and spent two hours setting this room up, the reason why throughout this week hundreds and hundreds of hours were, were gifted to this church by volunteers all over this room, the reason why is for this moment right now. For those of you that are here this morning that say that says, I've never said yes to Jesus. I've, I've never acknowledged him as the Lord of my life. I've never called upon him to be my savior. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm not asking for your church history. You can sit in church for years and never accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because what's not mo it's not most important to me where you go to church or where you give your offering or whether you have an Echo t-shirt or a whatever t-shirt. That's not the issue to me. The issue to me and to Jesus is your relationship with him first and foremost. And if you're here this morning and you've never made a personal commitment to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to be able to do that right now. You can say no to that. But you can also say yes to that. And if you want to say yes to that this morning, it's something you have to do. I can't do it for you. I'd love to. 
that's not the way this works. God wants you to take full responsibility and ownership. You and only you can say yes to Jesus for you. So here's a pathway. You can, you can say it on your own, or you can kind of use what I'm about to pray as your model. And here, here's what I would ask you to pray or lead, direct you to pray if this was you. Say something like, Jesus, I want to make you my Lord, and I need you to be my Savior. So I admit that I've, <laughs> I've lived life my own way up to this moment right now. I've done life as I think best. I have sinned against you. I've disobeyed you. I've made choices that seemed right to me, whether they were right to you or not. So today, please forgive me for living that way. God, I believe you exist. And God, I believe you sent your son Jesus to the earth. I believe, Jesus, that you came to the earth. You lived a sinless life. You died on the cross. You didn't stay dead. You defeated death. And now you're in heaven. And Jesus, I believe you sent your Holy Spirit who's making me aware of you right now. So I invite you into my life. I welcome your spirit into mine. And I make myself as unlikely of a candidate as I seem to be the new home to your Holy Spirit. Wash me through and through. And help me each moment that I have breath to be a little bit less like who I used to be. More like who you already are, Jesus. I'm going to invite my... Uh, prayer team if you guys would come down right now just to my left and to my right and everybody else in the room you can open your eyes and lift your heads if you did pray that prayer for the first time today and you still have a connect card with you there's a spot on the back that you can just mark a little box that says today I made a decision to follow Jesus guys if you something I forget to say so often that I want to make sure that I say is if you made a decision to follow Jesus, please tell somebody. Please tell somebody. Tell the person who brought you. Tell the person in your life that's the closest to, the closest person in your life that believes in Jesus like you do. Tell them. Trust me, they will, they will be really thrilled. If you don't feel like you have anybody to tell, tell me. Tell one of our leaders. Tell somebody. Let us know because we want to come alongside you in this journey that you're on and help you keep moving forward. We're all about making disciples here because that's what I'm trying to do. Every day that I'm alive, I'm trying to be a little bit more like Jesus than I used to be. Here's the way I want to close our service. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song or two. But I want to make an open invitation. At the end of every service, if you've got a need going on in your life, you're sick, you need a job, you need wisdom, anything that you would just want somebody to pray with you about, we're here for that. But I also want to make an invitation. Some of you here, you'd say, I do have a relationship with Jesus. I am saved. I'm in the Lord and Savior in my life. But that baptism of the Holy Spirit thing you were talking about, that extra dose of power, I haven't experienced that in my life, and I'm interested in it. Friend, if you'd like someone to just pray with you about that, 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 that God delivers that to you, we'll pray with you about that. You don't have to have us pray with you about that. You know what? You just have to set your mind on God and seek it. You just have to set your mind on God and seek it. And in a time that just, it'll happen when it happens. I've heard people that receive it just instantaneously, almost by accident, and then other people who said, I've prayed for weeks. I don't, have the, <laughs> I don't have the solution for all of that, but I know that God said, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. So I just want to invite, invite you, if that's something you'd just like to say, hey, you know, Pastor or Brian or Mark or Dennis, I just want to, this is something I want to go after. Will you pray with me that God releases this to me? We'll be happy to pray with you about that. To make that easier, as we spend this last five or six minutes in worship, why don't you just stand? 
if I could just ask everybody in the house just to stand. It makes it easier for people to get out of their seats. We're going to spend a few moments in worshiping God together. We're going to be here at the altar to pray with you. And then we'll come back and close the service in just a moment. But Chris, as you and the team lead, why don't you just come let us pray with you this morning.